Let's hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women who were following Jesus, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Let me say that again. He is not here, but has risen. risen Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, that is the disciples, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now down to verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that is the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven The disciples and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, now we ask that you would open your word to us. Open the scriptures that we might see Jesus and open our eyes and open our hearts that they might burn with love for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here at Living Hope Church, we've met some pretty colorful people along the way. One of the most interesting of our former church members, so don't look around and try to figure out who this is, the former church member. He described once getting into a fight with a pastor, a fist fight, where he punched the pastor in the face. I was always on my best behavior with this guy. He described once while homeless how he captured squirrels in Washington Park just down the street using a homemade bolo, you know, ropes with some pool balls tied around to wrap around the little squirrel's legs, and he ate those for his meals. He also listed on his resume as having been, in his former life, a grave robber. That's right, 
a grave robber. Before he was alive in Christ, he was visiting graveyards in Chicago with a shovel, digging up the dead, taking jewelry and possibly even some gold teeth from the deceased. But isn't that a picture of what all of us do? We're searching for treasure in a graveyard. We're looking for glory in things that won't last. We have no business going to some of the places we go, trying to find treasure. We conspire to acquire things and achieve things that will simply be pried out of our hands when we die. But don't you long for something more than that? Don't you think, no, that's not the course that I want my life to follow. I want a treasure that will not decay. I want a glory that will not die. Jesus said in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, set your heart on things above. Store your treasure up in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and where thieves will not break in and steal. Where can we find this true treasure? Where can we find real relationships that will last and endure through the ages? Where can we find a glory that will only grow over time and not be buried six feet underground and covered with weeds and forgotten? We can find the true treasure, the only lasting glory. You could say the epicenter of eternal life itself can be found, ironically, in a graveyard. A particular graveyard, a garden tomb, and it's interesting that life first began in a garden, Genesis chapter 1, and that resurrection life sprang up first in a garden, the garden tomb that our Lord resided in for a brief three days. Often life becomes so mundane or so messy or so busy, so crazy that we just grow tired of seeking eternal glory in God's treasures and we compromise, we settle for idols right in front of our face rather than seeking glory that's beyond what our eyes can see. And, and so our doubts and our disappointment and the distractions of our life grow larger and larger. They begin dominating our thoughts even on Easter Sunday and the glories of God and the hope of God's promise grow smaller and dimmer until they just vanish from our hearts. I had a barrage of busy distractions just like that hit me starting Good Friday in the evening after our service was over and continue until last night. And within 24 hours, I had to deal with a stabbing of someone closely connected to our church. Thankfully, no one was hospitalized, three people injured. I had to deal with a cranky church van that our street mechanics just couldn't quite fix after eight hard hours of working on it out on the curb on 64th and Drexel. I had to deal with a sick daughter who's still now sick with my wife at home. And during my final Saturday night sermon preparation, a phone call came from one of the tenants. He and the four kids were locked out of their apartment, and I needed to come let them in. We tried, right? I still had to come out. Distractions don't take Easter vacation. That's what I learned this weekend. Busyness, distress, trauma, drama, it doesn't stop. It competes with our hearts for what we will really value and find glorious, what we will focus our mind and our hearts on. I'm fired up this morning. I, I really feel my need for a resurrection this morning. I don't know if you do, but do you feel your need for resurrection power this morning? I do. I do. Let's be honest about some doubts and distractions that really disappoint us and lead us away from the resurrection of Jesus 
and, and, and threaten to eclipse the glory of joy at Christ's resurrection. And then later, let's look at some good news of how to recapture some of that eternal glory in all of life. We're really looking for treasure. Let's see where we can find it this morning. First, I want you to consider one of the doubts or distractions that comes into many of our hearts, that the resurrection itself is threatening to us. The resurrection itself is threatening to our little world and our ideal that we control our lives and that we're in power and that we're in control. And the resurrection says, no, someone else is the risen king, not you. And so sometimes we even try to run away from this resurrection truth rather than let it run rampant through our lives. We run away from it. Mark chapter 6, for example, verse 16, we have a picture of King Herod, the king of Israel, one of the kings of the region where Jesus was doing his ministry, and he hears, who is this Jesus, this miracle worker? And King Herod asks, and he gets different answers, and some said, well, he might be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. That was not a good thing for Herod. Why? Because King Herod had beheaded John the Baptist and had served his head on a platter to his stepdaughter, if you might remember that story. And so to say this man, maybe John the Baptist, come back from the grave would be most unwelcome for King Herod because it means that he's coming back to haunt Herod or to get revenge. You see, in the same way, Jesus' resurrection would not really be good news to Jesus' enemies. The ones that put him on the cross, according to Luke chapter 24, verse 20, how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified, they would not be happy that this man that they just sentenced to death and watched die on a cross was now claiming to be alive by the witness of his disciples. What does it mean if a resurrected Jesus really has come back if we don't want him to come back? It means that we're no longer in control, that if he really has conquered death itself, then he's in charge of the world, not me. A risen Jesus means you can't make your own rules and you can't play by your own rules. Money, sex, power, these are not little toys that you can just do whatever you want with. These are things that God has given us as gifts and we should steward them under the lordship of the risen Christ and we have to learn to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ as Colossians teaches us. Listen, you can't outrun death and you can't outrun the risen Lord of life who overcame death so why not just give up your running and let the threat of the resurrection become your treasure? Let the resurrection run its course in your life. Let it run rampant in your life. Let the life of Jesus work itself out thoroughly in your life. Why not serve him as Lord and, and find the true reward that comes from treasuring Jesus, rejoicing in him with trembling for who he is? Now there's a second doubt or distraction or disappointment that comes into our lives, both as Christians and those of us that may not be Christians today. It's an intellectual challenge. It's, it's the intellectual doubts that we have. Now, back in the days of Jesus walking on the earth, there were Jewish people who did not believe in the resurrection. Most of them did, but there was a, a, a class of uh, Jews called the, the Sadducees who did not believe in a physical, literal resurrection from the grave, like some liberal Christians would not believe in today, who don't believe that the Word of God is true. And so, they're in the minority, though. Most Jews back then would have believed that there was a general resurrection from the dead. And you can find an example of this in John chapter 11, when Jesus comes to two sisters who had lost their brother, Lazarus. I know some of you like to say Lazarus. That sounds more holy in King James, but it's really Lazarus. Lazarus had died, and he was four days in the grave. And Jesus said to his sister Martha, I will raise him up 
And she said, of course you'll raise him up. You'll raise all of us up. We'll all be raised up at the last day, at the resurrection of the dead. All of us at one time in this general universal resurrection will rise from the dead. But no Jew in his right mind or her right mind had a category for a resurrection happening in one person, Jesus, for example, that was not an option for them. They said, no, there's no one person being resurrected. It's only everybody at the end of time, at the final day of judgment. The resurrection taking place in one man is still a hard idea to swallow for modern people like us. It was hard for ancient people to think about that. It was an intellectual barrier and challenge to them, and it is for people today. It's no easier to convince people that there is only one man who has risen from the dead and who is the Lord over life and death and he alone is the author of salvation. And some of my friends have told me this, and I'm sure some of yours have said similar things, that, you know what, this resurrection story is a myth and it's found in other religions too. So, hmm, there, take that, Christian, thinking you got the edge on the resurrection. Of course, we can say, yes, resurrection stories do appear in other religions. But do they have historical evidence backing them up? Like the account of Jesus? Do they ignite a life-changing, history-making movement like our living hope Jesus has done? There's a reason these are obscure myths that are found in history books and not living movements where billions of people follow these supposed resurrected gods or humans. Only in Jesus, in his resurrection, do we have a living hope, a real present reality that's working itself out in the world and the resurrection stories from other religions are just like any other little hints of glory. They're just echoes of the real reality of the eternal life that Jesus brings. They're, they're just a hunger in the human heart for a true hero who really can rise from the dead. And they will find that hope in Christ. Every human soul feels an empty hunger for eternal life. And even though there's intellectual objections, we will find that only at the empty tomb of Christ do we find the fullness of life that we hunger for. There's a third objection or a distraction that we have to deal with. That's that the hidden glories of the resurrection itself, the realities of the resurrection, are competing with the glaring, obvious pains of life, the death and distress and destruction all around us. How can the resurrection be real when we see so much pain? It's right in our faces, in our news, in our homes, in our hearts. How can the resurrection really matter? Is it true when all of the world seems to be falling apart that someone... God himself is, is saying he's putting the world back together. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, we read this, that Jesus on the first day of the week was not in the tomb, and the women who were following him went there, and what did they take with them? They didn't take tambourines and guitars to sing his praises for rising from the dead. They took spices. Now, why would they take spices? That's to keep his body from smelling bad because he'd been in the grave for three days. That's what you do with spices. It's kind of like taking flowers to a graveside. It's to memorialize someone, to honor them, to, to treat their body with respect. And, and so it's kind of like saying, what if you were sick in the hospital? I came to you and brought you flowers. And you said, okay, go ahead. You can put the flowers right over there on the table. And I said, no, I'm going to put these at your graveside. These are, these are flowers for your death. And I mean, what kind of hope would that give you? I mean, haven't I missed the whole story of what's going on? You're in the hospital to get better. You want to live. You are alive. They were a little confused. He said, I'm going to be alive on the first day of the week. On the third day after my crucifixion, I'm going to rise. They missed that somehow, and they came bringing flowers to his graveside, spices for his body when his body wasn't there. The angel said, the two men appearing in dazzling appearance said, he's not here, he's risen. Why do you look for the living among the what? The dead. 
don't show up at church and try to think that we're worshiping a dead memory of some Savior from long ago. We're worshiping a risen Savior, amen? He's risen. He's risen indeed. Now, we still struggle, though, with the distress of life and the pain that we, we see glaring in our face all the time. Stabbings happening on Good, Good Friday. Uh, cars breaking down. Children vomiting. These, these are not pretty things. And I wonder, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? I took the keys to the van this morning to crank it up just in case God had changed his mind over the weekend and decided to do a miracle for us and reprogram the computer that Ford dealership said that only they could do in shop. I said, well, you know, God, you program the programmers, and maybe you'd want to rewire that computer while I'm sleeping. He didn't decide to do that this morning. It would have been a great story, but he said, no, no, you're going to take it in, I guess. Get it towed, take it in the old-fashioned way. That's fine. He'll be faithful and get that van working soon, I'm sure. But we still struggle. What are you doing in this world full of broken things through, through the dryness and the pain and the death that I see? I'm sure you guys have heard of Death Valley, California. It's the lowest and hottest place in the United States. It once reached 134 degrees Fahrenheit, that is, for those of you that are from other lands. 134 degrees is really hot. It gets less than two inches of rain per year. In some years, there's no rain in Death Valley. But a few years ago, just a few years ago, there was a record year and sheets of rain fell in Death Valley and all kinds of dormant, dead, dry seeds that were buried underground in the desert were activated. The, the, the waxy coverings of those seeds was washed away and the seeds sprouted to life. And Death Valley was covered in a carpet of brilliant, beautiful flowers. And animals flocked to the valley at this new surprise vegetation in life. I know that you look and you see death all around you, you see dryness, but I'm asking you today not to let your expectations of what you see right in your face keep you from seeing that just under the surface, just behind the veil, there is life, there's resurrection power, there's dormant, sleeping glory that can be activated and discovered and enjoyed in your hearts and in your life. Hope is a reality because Jesus is risen. He's risen. He's risen indeed. The fourth distraction and doubt that rises in our mind is when we see witnesses to the resurrection, just like the women at the empty tomb went to the disciples and proclaimed as the first evangelist, he's not there, he's alive, just like he said he would. Now we remember what he said, that witnesses can be far too easily dismissed. People can say, ah, who are you? And they can dismiss the very voice of truth and hope. And how does that happen? Well, in, in verse 11, we're told in Luke 24, verse 11, that the words of the women seemed to these men like an idle tale because they didn't believe. You know, women were not trustworthy witnesses in laws of court back in those days. They would never be called to the stand. But guess what? God chose women to be his first witnesses and first evangelists to proclaim the good news of the empty tomb that Jesus was risen from the dead. And it's interestingly, you know, struck me this weekend that God also chose men who doubted the women to still be his evangelists later after it got through their thick skulls and hearts that it was true as well. So thank God that he still chose doubting men to believe the women eventually. But witnesses to the resurrection are often dismissed. People struggle when they see a, a Christian full of joy and full of hope and saying, guess what God has done for me? Isn't it true that many times we, if we're honest in our own hearts, even to other Christians, we say, who are you? I mean, we may not say it, but we think it. We dismiss them. We judge them. We think, how can this person, maybe it's because they're not as educated as me. 
how can they teach me anything about the Lord? Or maybe it's because they're younger than you and you look at them and say, what do you know about life? You've had this pampered, sheltered life. What do you know about what God can do? You've never experienced real hardships. And we dismiss the witnesses to the very resurrection of God for all sorts of reasons. Other times we say, that person's a hypocrite. I'm not going to listen to what they say. They're much more of a sinner than I am, we think to ourselves. And so we say, how can you teach me anything? I don't think God would ever use your voice to instruct me. And so we dismiss the witnesses to the resurrection. We treat people as hypocrites, and that's actually a fairly hypocritical thing to do, to say, I'm not going to listen to a fellow sinner who is experiencing God's grace and has something to share. And, and I would just recommend that you listen to the voice of sinners who God's grace is working through. I've, I've learned a lot from sinners, from criminals, from grave robbers even, literally. I've learned a thing or two about what forgiveness and life really means. The fifth doubt that arises in our hearts is that the resurrection is unnatural. It's so supernatural that it disturbs our natural way of thinking. It disturbs both ancient and modern minds once again. Because we're a people that demand empirical evidence. What does that mean? Empirical evidence, something we can taste, touch, see, smell, hear with our five senses. We can, we can reproduce it in a laboratory. We can chart it and graph it and write a report in a journal. We can, we can show it to friends and family and say, look at this. That's what Thomas, one of the disciples, was asking for. You know, we call him Doubting Thomas because he says, I would not believe in the resurrected Savior unless I could actually touch his wounds with my very hands. I want some empirical evidence. I want something I can touch, see with my eyes, then and then only will I believe. And he got the honor of empirical evidence. He got the honor to be face to face with Jesus. He got the honor to put his hand in Jesus' wound. That was his option. We get the gift of faith. Simply. We don't get the gift of face to face conversations with the Lord and touching his, his risen body now. We will one day, but right now it's faith. And Jesus says, blessed are you who will believe without seeing. Blessed are you. I'm giving you a gift, a blessing of faith, so you might still know my risen life and my resurrection power. You don't get the luxury of putting your hand firsthand into Jesus' womb, but you get the luxury and the blessing of the Holy Spirit living firsthand in your hearts. Amen? I'd rather that any day. He's always with us. He never forsakes us. In Luke chapter 24, verse 37, a verse we didn't read, Jesus appeared to all his disciples after the two that were walking on the road to Emmaus said, hey, he's alive, just like he said. And Jesus comes to them in verse 36 and says, peace to you, shalom. And they say, what is going on? Who is this? They thought he was a ghost, a spirit. And they were startled and frightened. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my feet and my, my feet and my hands. I'm flesh and bones. I'm not a ghost. You can see for yourself, I'm really risen bodily right before you. They were perplexed, though. They, they weren't sure what to make of this. The supernatural was disturbing, was frightening. And, and some of you may not be wanting something supernatural. You might say, I'll just settle for empirical evidence. And if there's not that, then I'm not going to believe anything. Once again, supernatural things might threaten you. You might say, how could this be? I've never experienced it for myself. To you, I'd say, get out more. If, if you don't realize that there are supernatural forces at work in the world, supernatural evil affecting people right around us, millions of people in this city, neighbors of ours, people in this world that are affected by supernatural evil, it's real. And there's also supernatural power pushing back against the darkness, changing sinners into saints, transforming lives, resurrecting the dead. This is happening. 
in our world today. It's resurrection power. So don't be so narrow-minded and say, I could only believe empirical evidence. I can't believe something supernatural that I can't understand with my eyes or my limited logic. And let me repeat, your limited logic. Logic only goes so far. Even for the most brilliant of philosophers, what we need to do is to be consistent. When we come to this doubt of empirical evidence, we need to say, okay, let me be consistent. If I'm going to doubt what the Bible teaches, then I need to be fair and I need to doubt my doubts as well. Have you ever turned your doubts back onto themselves and said, why am I doubting so much? Why shouldn't I listen to what this ancient word called the word of God teaches? Why would I think that I'm in a position to judge something that billions of people have found help and truth and healing in? Doubt your doubts for a minute and see what happens. Put your doubts on hold. Suspend your disbelief for a minute and, and peer into the door of heaven. This is the largest crack we'll ever receive into the glimpse of eternal things, the resurrection of Christ. Look into the resurrection. Push into that space where there are holy mysteries and supernatural things happening. Push into it. Look into the resurrection of Jesus and ask yourself if you might, even you, might believe. In Christ, the Bible says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, but you have to look for them. You have to look for the wisdom that's found in Christ alone. The sixth and final doubt I'd like to bring out today is that the resurrection is slow to rule our hearts because our hearts are slow to believe. The resurrection is slow to rule over us because our hearts are slow and hard to convince of the truth of the resurrection. Luke 24, verse 25, Jesus takes these two men who are walking on the road to Emmaus, and he says, after hearing their stories of retelling what just happened to him, this man was crucified and he was buried and we thought he was going to be the Savior. And Jesus says, wait a minute, excuse me, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? Don't you see what Jesus is saying? He's not saying you're a bunch of idiots. That's not what the word foolish means. It means ignorant, literally. It means you're uninformed. You must have missed something somewhere. I did tell you, I preached to you while I was on earth that this is how it happened, but you missed it somehow. It went right over your heads and you're slow of heart to believe. That means you only believe what you want to. Or as one of the great Christian thinkers, uh, uh, Pascal said, the heart has reasons that reason knows nothing about. Why does the heart do what it wants to? I don't know. Why did you not believe me when I told you plainly? We're not quite sure. The heart is slow to believe. It does its own thing sometimes. Reason has nothing to do with what you believe sometimes. But Jesus said, stop having selective hearing and start listening to me now because I'm going to tell you this one time and then I'm going to vanish. I'm telling you, it is I. As the scriptures foretold, I was crucified, dead, and now I'm alive. It is I. Selective hearing is something that we do all the time, isn't it? We have slow hearts to believe. It's kind of like a child who's fixated on dessert because mom said, okay, you can only have a piece of cake if you finish your cauliflower. And all the child hears selectively is this. You can only have cake. <laughs> you can only have cake. Only cake. Happy thoughts. <laughs> Prosperity, joy, peace. Peace? A piece of cake, yes. You can only have cake. Our ears hear what they want to hear, not what we've been told. Even adults, we get into arguments and we say, you said this and I said that. No, you didn't. You, you think what you want to think and you hear what you want to hear. We need to slow down because our hearts are slow to believe and slow to hear the truth. 
After the resurrection, though, Jesus didn't come to these disciples and say, shame on you, you bunch of sinners. You betrayed me. You denied me three times. You, Peter, I'm talking to you. And the rest of you scattered like roaches in the, in the light. What were you thinking, you bunch of idiots? How could you leave me like that? I'm so faithful to you. You are so faithful. He does not do that. He does not shame them, drag them, rub their nose in their sins. He doesn't do this. But he does one thing. He does point out one sin, the sin of unbelief. Post-resurrection, Jesus doesn't bring up all their past and dig up all their dirt, but he does say, why can't you still believe? Look at me. I'm a risen Lord. I'm right before you. You're slow of heart. Go ahead. If you need to, touch my wounds and believe. But please, look at what I've done, gone through for you. Believe that it's me. He doesn't say shame on you in John 20, verse 29. He says, go and tell my brothers that my father is now your father as well. You see, what he's saying is, this is good news for sinners. There's no shame. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, however far you've gone, there's hope for you, sinner. Jesus still wants you in his family. He's still inviting you in today. My father is your father. Go and tell my brothers. Go and share this good news. You know, I don't know what happened to my kids. There must have been some resurrection power happening in my house this morning because when they were released to go find hidden Easter eggs, as my wife always hides them, and they were released into the house to find them, after they found them all and collected them in their baskets, they began throwing candy at me literally. Here, Daddy, have candy, have chocolate. I was like, no, stop, you keep it. I don't know what's going on. But they were sharing the joy. I mean, that's what we were called to do. When the power comes and Jesus invites us into his family, we're called to go and tell others, you come too. You're welcome too to join the family of God. And that's the invitation today. And I want to share three quick ways that we can do that, that we can get this treasure deep in our hearts, that we can get the glory of God. How can you get a heart that seeks resurrection life even in the graveyard, even in the distress of life? How can you have a true treasure hunt for true glory? Well, three things. One, search the scriptures. In verse 32 of our chapter, Jesus says, the disciples are recounting what Jesus said, and they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? He opened the scriptures. He opened the Hebrew scriptures to them and showed them where he was found in the scriptures. He says in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures all the things concerning him. Open the scriptures. Are you opening the word of God? This is where you get the fire burning in your heart. How can you have a fire burning for the glorious things of God and start to take your eyes off of the things of the world? It's opening the word of God, opening the scriptures, seeing Jesus there. I'm not asking you just to open the scriptures and ask, you know, what rules should I follow? That's not what Christianity is, is what rules should I follow? I'm asking you to open the Bible and see Jesus come alive in the scriptures because that's the purpose of why we were given this book. That you'd go to the law and the prophets and the Psalms and all the scriptures will testify of who he is and how good he is for sinners like us. This is an, this is an active witness. It's a living and active word that confronts us in our sin and confronts us with who Jesus really is and it raises the dead. It calls us to life. Would you respond today to God's word calling you? Would you repent of your sins and believe in him alone for salvation? Would you open these scriptures and learn more about him? Discover him there. When you open the scriptures, open your heart to him. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see who he really is in every book of the Bible because you'll find him there. 
The second thing is to let the Scriptures search you. As you search the Scriptures, let the Scriptures search you. There's no area of life that you should not expose yourself to God and say, go ahead, God, you already know what's going on in there. Let me be honest now and stop pretending. Help me. Help me with this secret sin that no one else knows about. Help me with this doubt or this, this area of fear. Help me because I need you. Open me up, God, and expose my needs and, and then fill me with life. Fill me with glory. Fill me with truth. So open your heart to the glory of God. Stop shutting yourself down because that's what sin and shame do. They, they close us down to God. They, they make us uh, shut the door in His face. And we use all sorts of other things to medicate our pain, whether it's food or alcohol or porn or media or social media or working more or sleeping more. We do all sorts of things to avoid the truth of what's going on in our hearts. And we're being called here to let the Holy Spirit and the Word of God search us today. Shine on us and heal us. Let the trials of your life wake you up. Let it be your wake-up call when you see pain in your life or in others. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Hey, whispers to us. Whispers to us. Can you hear me? I mean, it doesn't do much good if we simply get whispered to all the time. If we're simply getting whispered to, we're not going to learn very much. But what he does, he shouts to us in our pain. He shouts to us. The, the pain that God gives us is a megaphone, C.S. Lewis says, to wake us up to reality. I'm glad, like usually after the fact, 2020 hindsight, I'm glad that God's put me through suffering. It's never fun when it's being experienced. Hebrews says discipline is never fun. Pain, suffering, never fun when you're dealing with it. But afterwards you see that this was the megaphone you needed to wake up to begin walking again in holiness and faithfulness and grace. His grace is greater than all your sin. And the third thing that we need to do here in closing is search all of your life. Search out all the world for the clues that God has hidden in His creation of His glory, His treasure. God is present everywhere. He's hidden little treasures like Easter eggs, like we're going to be hiding soon for the kids. We're going to hide eggs, and they're going to go find the little goodies inside. And God's done exactly the same thing in this world. He's put in unexpected places, treasures. You must seek and find places like suffering, like I've mentioned. Places like the mirror. When you look in the mirror and see the image of God in you, you will see glory begin to shine. When you look in relationships and say, this relationship that's so hard or difficult now, I'm starting to see Christ's resurrection power working in it now. You'll go to work and you'll say, the thorns and thistles of, of the work and the curse upon my work, I can still see glory shining through. I mean, isn't it just a beautiful thing that Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week and said, now this is going to become your Sabbath when you don't have to work anymore? I'm glad that you, you don't have to go uh, work right now and you can sit here and hear the good news of Jesus. What a gift. He says, you'll find glory even on a Sunday when you don't have to work. But when you go back to work, you can find glory there too in the laboratory or your home or in the streets. Whatever you're going to do Monday through Friday, you can find power and help. If you have trouble, you can pray to me and I will answer your prayers. I will heal you. I will listen and I'm concerned about you. When you are perplexed about a situation, ask me for help. I'm, I'm your mentor. I'm your 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 friend, I'm right here. I know a lot more than you do about chemistry or about changing dirty diapers and raising children. I know a lot about everything. And so why don't you ask me for help? I'm right here with you. There's glory all around to be discovered. There's power very close at hand in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's present through his Holy Spirit through all of your life. He's working with you and through you. There's also glory to be discovered in Jesus' absence. What do I mean by that? There's glory in his presence with us, but 
he's really not physically present with us right now. His, his body is seated on the throne of heaven, and he's not physically with us. And we can glory in that as well. Why? Because we can rejoice that even though the tomb is empty and Jesus is not here, that he's risen. He's not only risen from the dead, but he's risen up to heaven itself, seated on the throne. And thank God that the last eyewitnesses that ever saw Jesus on this planet saw him ascend to heaven and stretch out his arms in blessing like a priest and say, bless you because I'm going to prepare a place for you. The fact that I'm not here is a good thing because I'm going to prepare a place for you that's much better than this place of crying, disease, and pain. Thank God that he's not physically here, but he sent us his Holy Spirit to be with us in the pain, and he's preparing a greater place, a greater garden. He's going to transform this death valley into a, a canyon full of blossoming flowers, a, a place of life, a, a new garden city, the new heavens and new earth. Thank Jesus that his tomb is empty, and that one day we're going to live in the land of empty tombs. There will be no more tomb with dead bodies, and he's going to raise the dead. He's going to give us life. All that call on him in faith will be raised to life again. Praise God that he's not here with us, but we're not alone. His Holy Spirit's with us. The promised Holy Spirit that he talked about in Luke 24, verse 49. He says, I'm sending the promise from the Father. You'll be clothed with power from on high. Praise God that he sent us his Holy Spirit. His, his very presence. It's the very rain from heaven. The Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples and gave them in their dormant, dead, dry state, life again. He, he poured out rain upon Death Valley and he gave them life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the consummate grave robber. He is truly the most glorious body snatcher. And I'm, just, I'm not making that up. That's a Bible word. You guys know the word rapture, the, the word that describes when Jesus comes back. At the last day, he's going to snatch up. That's the word rapture. It means snatch up. He's going to snatch up the bodies of those who believe him and transform them gloriously. He's going to take from the graves the dead. He's going to snatch them out of death and bring them to life. Praise God that he's a body snatcher, that he's a grave robber, that he's not going to leave us in the ground, leave us in this place forever. He's going to come back for us. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me say it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. As the musicians come forward and those who are helping serve communion, let's pray to our risen Savior. God, it would be enough today if you simply told us to seek you and if you gave us promises like you have to seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But that's not all you've done. You haven't just given us commands to seek you. You've also said, I am seeking you. You've also told us in Psalm 23 that your mercies are pursuing us all the days of our lives. You even told the prophet Isaiah, those who did not seek me, I came to them and said, here I am. Here I am. Through the prophet Jeremiah, you said, when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart because I am seeking you with all my heart. Lord, would you seek us today? As we seek treasure in all sorts of places, we seek it even in graveyards, I pray that you would wake us up, that you would enlighten our eyes, and as you seek us, as you seek us to be your treasure, I pray that we would delight in you alone today. And no matter where we look in this world, if we are looking with your help, with your word, if we are searching your word, if you are searching our hearts, we will find glory because we know that you're alive and that you're always with us, even to the very end of the age. And with this in our hearts and our minds, we stand to rejoice and to receive the good gifts you've given to us now. 
In Jesus' name, amen.